You are listening to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kelly Casperson. Hello, everybody. I am Monica Molinar. I'm one of the co-founders and co-CEOs of Alloy Health, which is a telehealth and pharmacy platform for women in menopause. And we're really existing to validate everything that is going on in your life during perimenopause and, and menopausal transition, provide you with access to menopause literate trained doctors, OBGYNs, who have spent their careers working with women in menopause and also providing you easy access to evidence-based solutions to help you through the symptoms of menopause. And all of this started with my own personal journey going into menopause about 10 years ago when I had my ovaries removed after a positive BRCA diagnosis and decided to prophylactically remove my ovaries, which sent me into surgical menopause overnight. And after trying for several years to navigate through all of the information and misinformation, I decided to, with a partner, start Alloy Health to hopefully provide a better opportunity for women to get educated, for other women to get educated and to get the solutions that they need. So with that, we're super duper excited to have Dr. Kelly Casperson joining us today. Dr. Kasperson is a urologist and sexual medicine expert um, with a hugely popular and one of my favorite podcasts called You Are Not Broken, which speaks to women and men in this stage of life to really help navigate the medical issues that are going on, but also just the sex education that we never learned in school or out of school. So we're learning it now in our 40s and 50s, which is great. So Hello and welcome, Dr. Kaspersons. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for uh, having me. Yeah. You are a urologist. Most of us think about going to an OBGYN for menopause, but how did you get excited about menopause? How did you start really making menopause a part of your practice? Yeah, it's a it's fun. It's totally happened organically. I started the podcast a little over three years ago after a life changing patient opened my eyes to the fact that we're really underserving women in sexual health. You know, urologists are the ones who are like the owners of Viagra. We're helping all the penises get erections, and I just assumed the gynecologists were taking care of the women, and my mind was open to the fact that they're not. So the more I started to learn, the more I'm like, I can't keep this information to myself. I need to talk. And that's where the podcast and the Instagram came from. And the menopause really came from my Instagram listeners because they kept saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But sex after menopause, sex after menopause, sex after menopause. And it was kind of the same thing of like, is that true? What does the science say about it? And so I deep dove into it. And it's not true that your sex life goes away after menopause. In fact, some of the people having the best sex are in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. I have sexually active people in their 70s and 80s in my practice. There's a big myth that old people aren't sexually active. We have a big bias. So I started learning. I'm like, why are we so afraid of hormones? Where is this coming from? And to me, what, what drives me to keep talking about this is I treat men. And we don't treat women the same way we treat men when it comes to feeling good, lifestyle, living your best quality of life, treating symptomatic symptoms that aren't life-threatening, but they're life-affecting. And to me, like until there's a quality in both sex med and in hormones, we've got a lot of work to do. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. I've heard some of your podcasts where you've spoken to other doctors also who treat men and just the way that you ask questions of men or offer solutions without 
the 10th degree of like, are you sure you really need this is, <laughs> is pretty amazing. So that's, that has been a real eye opener actually, you know, just hearing you talk about that. Can you define what we mean by GSM or genitourinary symptoms of menopause? Let's just sort of start at the beginning. Like, why do people used to call it vaginal atrophy? Is that incorrect? Is it is it correct? Um, let's let's get us sort of a little primer. Yeah. I mean, just to back you know, just to back up one hot sec. Like to define what menopause is for people is not a great definition because a lot of people have had uterus, you know, their uterus removed or an IUD, but it's really a year after no natural periods. A lot of people think that their symptom of, of menopause is a hot flash. So what I see a lot is people like, I didn't go through menopause because I didn't have hot flashes, right? So our education alone of what happens is really poor so that when GSM hits, vaginal atrophy hits, the genital urinary syndrome of menopause starts kicking in sometimes before your periods end but sometimes five years after, eight years after, people are blindsided because they had no idea this is what happens when your estrogen goes to zero in your body, which is probably a better definition of menopause than a year with no periods, right? It's like, it's at, at the point where you make no hormones anymore. Your ovaries cease. It's actually also that even birth control can make, can give you vaginal dryness. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and breastfeeding. Huh. Yeah. So... Vaginal atrophy is what it used to be called. We used to call older vaginas senile vaginas. I actually discovered this in, I was, I was pulling old articles because I was researching to go on a tangent, but researching the myth that's out there about use it or lose it. So I had to go back to like the original article where this use it or lose it data came from. And they were all talking about senile vaginas. And I'm like, okay, that's like even worse than vaginal atrophy. <laughs> At least you don't call them senile vaginas anymore. But um, the, the reason people didn't like atrophy is number one, they didn't like the word atrophy is kind of like a almost a derogatory term of what happens to things. The big, other big reason is it doesn't explain why it's happening or like the other associated things. So genital urinary syndrome of menopause, GSM, although it's a mouthful, explains a lot more, number one, why it's happening because of menopause, and number two, that it's genital and urinary syndrome. Uh, so it includes bladder stuff, right? I'm getting up to pee more at night. I have more urgency. I'm getting more urinary tract infections. It burns more when I pee. Lots of women go to the doctor. They just get antibiotic after antibiotic because they just assume this is a urinary tract infection, but it's not. It's genital urinary syndrome of menopause. So vaginal atrophy or senile vagina doesn't explain all of that. Yeah. And actually, you know, as I said, a lot of what we do at Alloy has sort of come from my own personal experience. So for example, <laughs> I also suffered from incontinence and genitourinary symptoms, symptom of menopause, which more than 80% of women, all women will experience this at some point in their lives. And it does not get better without the treatment of estrogen. So there's no other way to actually improve it and cure it. But can you talk a little bit about the bladder actually and how estrogen works in the bladder and why vaginal estrogen works to actually cure incontinence and UTIs? 
Yeah. So there's mixed data on this, just to break up incontinence for a second. There's stress incontinence, which is leaking with cough, sneeze, laugh. Mixed data. Some people say estrogen helps that. Some people some people say estrogen makes that worse. We don't know yet. I think it's individualized. It has to do with your pelvic floor muscles and your strength and all those things. Then there's overactive bladder or urge incontinence, which we know is affected by having low estrogen and giving estrogen usually to the vagina. And I always tell my patients, this is a bladder medication. We're just putting it in the vagina to get to the bladder. They're condo mates, they share a wall. So estrogen is anti-inflammatory and it also helps that smooth muscle of the bladder relax. That's how they think it works. And the, the bladder itself gets affected. It gets a little bit more overactive. Or when you think of like, just to break it down simple, think of like a bladder and a baby. It's not under the baby's control. It's just starting to do its own thing. And then we like train it, you grow, and then it's more under your control. So overactive bladder is more like my bladder is starting to do its own thing again. Get it back to where it's happy. It loves having estrogen. It mellows out. I know those aren't all scientific terms, but it's easy. It's easier to understand. Yeah, no, it's it's really fascinating. Once you start to understand how estrogen works actually and, and hormones just generally and the fact, but the fact that we as women have estrogen receptors all over our bodies, then you realize why it affects your whole body when you lose the estrogen, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a big a big thing that people don't know is we have estrogen receptors everywhere. We have them in our inner ear, you know, more vertigo after menopause, right? Because our inner ear gets affected. We have them in our joints, our synovial fluid. That's why our joints get more achy. We're more prone to frozen shoulder, there's lots of ortho stuff we still need a lot more data on. But to know that estrogen receptors are everywhere. So of course, our whole body is affected when that estrogen goes down. Yeah, it's funny. As you were talking before about looking at the data, I mean, I think one of the things that we unfortunately struggle with is that this hasn't been historically such a well-studied time of life or period. It hasn't been considered something as necessary, I guess, to do research on. And so we do sometimes struggle with you know, not having giant pools of, of longitudinal data to draw on. So we have to use evidence and estrogen has been used in women successfully since the 1940s. So we do have a, certainly plenty of um, science and information about it. But one of the things that you talk a lot about on your podcast and just informal conversations is vaginal estrogen, <laughs> one of my favorite topics. And it's not just you, there are plenty of other doctors out there who are obviously have sort of taken up this mantle about vaginal estrogen. Rachel Rubin is another urologist and I know friend of friend of yours sort of in this movement, calling it essential skincare for women, 40 on, Viagra for women, other kind of glowing descriptors. When should women start using vaginal estrogen? How do you know that it's that you're ready? This is something that Alloy sells and offers. So we believe it. I use it. I also mm-hmm. use it on the face. That's mm-hmm. how we started making the M4 face cream because it was so effective on my vaginal skin that I was like, this must be perfect for your face. And it is, but talk to us a little bit more about your, your love for vaginal estrogen, which we share. I love vaginal estrogen. I posted on Instagram this morning for anybody on Instagram. I just got a t-shirt made that says estrogen fairy. Nice. I love it. Um, so just to break it down for people, because Again, knowledge is key and you kind of got to start at the beginning, but there's really two different types of estrogen when we talk about prescription hormone therapy, right? There's systemic, which is your whole body, usually a patch, sometimes a pill. It's basically going in your whole body. And then there's local, also known as low dose, also known as vaginal estrogen, 
It depends upon where you are. On Instagram, I don't call it vaginal estrogen because they flag anatomic body parts on that platform. But here it's most commonly called vaginal estrogen. But again, that doesn't really help women. I'll get it a lot. Women will be like, I'm not sexually active. And I'm like, I'm giving this to you for your urinary tract infections. The vagina plays a vital role in the microbiome of the pelvis to prevent urinary tract infections. So systemic versus vaginal or local. The vaginal or local is incredibly low dose. It's not going to be in your bloodstream. It's not, you can, you can literally measure your blood estrogen levels and it won't go up after being on vaginal estrogen. And there's a couple of different options. You can put a ring in there. You can put cream in there. You can put a tab in there, commonly called Vagifem tab or estradiol tabs. So a couple of different routes. I have a bias. I have a cream bias. I get feisty with all the people who say it's too messy. I'm like, did you meet your 21-year-old vagina? Do you remember her? She was messy. She was doing stuff, right? That's a healthy vagina. And then also with the cream, I just say back off on the dose a little bit, you know, put it in before bed, all that stuff. I like the cream because I can put it on my clitoris. I can put it on my labia menora. And then that six o'clock spot for people who are watching the video on my thumb, the six o'clock spot is very, can get very thinned and tender. And it's a troublemaker for sexually active people after menopause. And you can take the cream and you can rub it there like skincare. So that is my vaginal estrogen cream bias. For the people who, I had a lady, she's like, my vagina is too dry. I put her on the cream. She's like, I don't like how messy it is. And I'm like, you can't hate both. Okay. Like, That's really funny. I'm trying to picture what the six o'clock is, but I think I'll, I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, well, think of the, if a vulva is like a clock, six yeah. o'clock at the yeah. bottom, the bottom part of it. it. That is a notorious pain with entrance. A new study just came out in the menopause journal looking at estrogen cream specifically there for pain with penetration, and it works fantastically. And it was really the first time a paper had looked at like direct skincare estrogen application for pain with sex. So I'm glad somebody did that study. Yeah, but that, I, again, that's, that's my cream bias until I die. But if people can't handle cream, we've got rings, we've got tabs, there's options. I have a cream bias too. I think it works much better. I've used the Vagifem and I actually don't think that it dissolves completely. So sometimes I like this, maybe this is gross and a lot of information, but here we are talking about vaginas. Like you just get like the tab that basically sort of falls out after a period of time, which I think is weird. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I think of it like skincare. I'm like, would you take a tab of sunscreen and put it in your ear and affect, you know, expect your face to be covered? No, yeah. you put on a cream. So I have a cream bias. If it's too messy, use less of it. You know, just use as much as you need to get the job done. Yeah. I think you may have sort of touched on this, but we get this question a lot. Will using the cream solve your hot flashes or other symptoms? No. Yeah. The equivalent, this is roughly, but the equivalent, a year's worth of vaginal estrogen is the equivalent to one oral pill of estrogen. So it's incredibly low dose. Orders of magnitude. A year's worth of vaginal estrogen is equivalent to one oral pill of menopausal hormone treatment or menopausal. Wow, that's amazing. I hope everybody heard that because one thing about vaginal estrogen that is really important that we've we've learned and, and the guidelines now corroborate this, but even women who have had breast cancer, who have had Tell us all the people who think that they can't use vaginal estrogen who can't. Yeah, I get this all the time on Instagram. I can't use vaginal estrogen because I've had a blood clot. Not true. I can't use vaginal estrogen because I have a family history of breast cancer. Not true. I can't use vaginal estrogen because I've had an abnormal mammogram. Not true. 
In people who've had breast cancer, again, all breast cancer is unique. Run it by your oncologist. But we do have ACOG guidelines, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology guidelines, saying that it is effective. I always just have my breast cancer patients get a get a permission slip, maybe show them that article, and you need to tell them your symptoms. Be like, I'm getting UTI after UTI. My relationship's on the rocks. I can't have sex. I have to pee four times a night. Like. These are symptoms that affect women's quality of life, and we are underserving them by scaring them to say this estrogen will not make any breast cancer come back. Yeah. We have a few questions from the audience about vaginal estrogen. So while we're on the topic, let's hit those. Can it be used more than twice a week? In most cases, yes. I mean, I always do. Whenever I do a podcast or an Instagram like this, I say, I'm not your doctor. This is information and educational purposes only. But yeah, I, I, because I'm very comfortable with this medication, humans are not all the same, right? Some people might be like, I'm good with just like once a week with this. It just keeps my symptoms at bay. Some people are like, I am doing better with a little bit every day. Okay. So for me, I'm very comfortable with that. I certainly, there are studies with showing much higher doses of vaginal estrogen that are currently prescribed and they seem safe. And again, it's so low dose. So I'm very comfortable with that because this is my practice. I don't think we're breaking any big laws by saying you can use it more. We're all we're all different. Just like some people need more sunscreen to not get sunburned, right? Like our skin is all different. It's I'm very comfortable with that. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a scientist, but I am the patient and have gone through this myself and now have been dealing with it for 10 years. And I would say that I also like the, what I think a lot of people don't, quite understand also because of all of the misinformation and sort of fear tactics around this topic is that like, that it's not as flexible as it is. I mean, really what, what I've found as a patient is, and I've tried everything from compounded systemic to pellets to, and now I'm on FDA approved commercially available systemic hormones, but you're really treating your symptoms and sometimes symptoms change and morph, even if you're on hormone therapy. So you can go up or down in terms of dose and there's no additional safety at the low doses that we're talking about. Also, there's really no additional safety issues by going up a little bit or down a little bit. Like what you don't want is too little, as I understand, because the preventive benefits of hormones are so tremendous, but only at at a certain level. Yeah. It can't be too low. The cream is by prescription only. Estrogen is a prescription. Um, I don't in like this country. In this country. What in America. Country? I would like to say that because I think it, it speaks to how freaking safe this is that multiple countries have it over the counter. Just America doesn't. Yeah. And the UK just made it over the counter as well, vaginal estrogen. Yep. For- the tabs, not the cream. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Will the cream work on splitting at the 12 o'clock? So it works on the six o'clock. What about the 12 o'clock? 12 o'clock? Yeah, I mean, probably all you'll get, you can get fissures between your labia minora and majora. That's a typical atrophy. You can start seeing, you know, shrinkage of the clitoris. You can start seeing fusion of the clitoral hood over the clitoris. It can increase pain. It can decrease arousal. It can make orgasms more challenging. I think estrogen cream helps all of that. And that's why I have, again, have a cream bias. And I laugh at the people who say it's too messy. <laughs> I'm like, we'll figure it out, right? It's so good for you. 
But um, if you're splitting at 12 o'clock, I would want somebody who's trained at doing exams to examine exactly what that 12 o'clock is. Is that clitoral hood? Is that around your urethra? There's a lot of 12 o'clock structures. And so that makes me think like I would need an exam to say for sure. But you know, try your estrogen cream. And then if you can find somebody who's well-trained in vulvar exams. Wait, hold on. The loss of estrogen can cause a fusing of the clitoris with the clitoral hood? Yep, it's called clitoral phimosis. Oh my goodness gracious. We'll do, a, we'll do an entire webinar just on the clitoris and hormones. And I mean, every t- I've been like so deep in this for so long and every time I still learn new- That's why we put our cream on our clitoris, my friend. I know. And I'm going to keep doing that because <laughs> I don't want to... I mean, I think it also it also increases sensation, which... I've noticed is lost otherwise, um, or definitely diminishes, um, Mm -hmm. which sort of brings us to the topic of Viagra, because you talked also earlier about prescribing Viagra for men and how readily available it is. It's actually been FDA approved for the last 25 years for men, but it hasn't been available for women readily until now. Alloy is selling a topical sildenafil. We're calling it the amazing cream for women to finally get access to a female dose of Viagra, Mm -hmm. um, which is topical, not oral. Can you talk a little bit about another total revelation I had recently, which is that the clitoris is basically the same organ as the penis and how sildenafil works, why Viagra is a good tool for women topically in their sort of arsenal of improving their arousal, their, you know. My pleasure. How much time do you have? Just kidding. Um, Okay, so the problem is we get crap for sex ed in this country. So I always have to start with like, it's it's getting worse. It's worse now than it was in the 90s. Crazy. Which is nuts, but here we are. So a lot of, you got to like back up for a second and be like 70% of women will not orgasm by putting something in their vagina. Contrary to what we've been taught and contrary to what Hollywood tells us, the clitoris is the organ of pleasure. The clitoris is the organ of orgasm. There's nuances to that, but that's beyond the scope of this talk. So the clitoris is just like the penis. It needs blood flow. It has erectile tissue. It needs to get aroused, engorged, and that's how we promote an orgasm. So how Viagra and all of its cousins like Cialis, Tadalafil, Stendra, there's multiple options for men. It's a vasodilator. So we have smooth muscle. Smooth muscle is what's in our gut and our clitoris, not like a bicep, right? So it's smooth muscle and the smooth muscle has to relax to bring in blood flow. That's how you get your engorgement and and the, the pleasure sensations with genital touch. So put it in the mouth, works great for men. They have a strong concordance, meaning I have an erection, I'm interested in sex. They've done studies in women and women are like, yeah, I've got tingly down there, but I'm not really in the mood or I'm in the mood, but I'm not really tingly down there. They have a bigger discrepancy. And that's a fascinating topic to talk about. Is it because of how women are socialized to think about sex? Very fascinating. But that's one theory of why oral Viagra doesn't work in all women. Because you can give her better blood flow doesn't mean she's interested in sex more. But for some women, they are. And so oral Viagra can be helpful for some women. We just don't know who those people are, but it's not like a home run. Not that Viagra is a home run, but Viagra is pretty good in men. Now, put it topically, now it just goes directly to the body parts, aids in vasodilation, brings in blood flow. You're like, ah, 
feel a little more tingly, feel a little more aroused, feel a little more like having sex because I'm feeling this way. So topically, it does seem to make a difference for a lot of women. Yeah. And are there, is there any contraindication? Like we still have to use the same silly warnings, like, you know, this is going to cause, could cause heart attack or something, which like it really won't if you're just putting it right on your clitoris, but I have not seen, and and again, we don't have tons of studies, but I have not seen any big risks with topical low-dose sildenafil. Yeah. But but there aren't huge studies because we don't have, you know, Pfizer doing this. Right. Because it's generic, because it's been generic for 25 years. And so they can't make money by selling it to women. That's right. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, it's just like local vaginal estrogen, right? Or it's like, it's a very low dose. It's topical. It's just for the organs that it's going on. It's not going to go into your brain or anything like that. Yeah. Have you tried it? Yep. What do you think? (laughs) I haven't tried yours yet. I'm waiting for my shipment. I'll check my mail today, see if it's there. Yeah. So I've used a couple of different types of... The generic word for this is scream cream right? There's multiple different compounding pharmacies. It's basically like a combination of vasodilators that you can have lots of different stuff in there. To me, like it's tingly. It's fun. I think anything like my directions on mine, which I love, like lubes will do this too. They'll be like, apply 15 minutes before and like rub in a clockwise direction. And you're like, that's going to help everybody. (laughs) Just put that on your label and it'll probably help your orgasm. I think it's a great tool. Personally, I think it it's not going to change your whole life. You know, obviously, like, first of all, women's sexual arousal is a, is a combination of lots of things, right? It's your head and your, and your body, but your head a lot. So if your head's not there, then it won't help. But. Yeah, I mean, I think the power of it is it really draws awareness to your vulva, to your clitoris, to like focus of like, okay, I want to be down here now. I want to be in my body. So to me, I like it as like an awareness focusing tool. But where we really don't have a lot of data is like clitoris is penis, right? Same organ, same erectile bodies, same effect to heart disease, side effects of medication, smoking, diabetes, right? And the data we have on clitoral function with these comorbidities is peanuts compared to what we have on the penile effects of these of these medications and conditions. But if you think the clitoris is the penis, women should also likely have arousal issues, engorgement issues with taking these medications or having these medical conditions. We just don't have the science. Our podcast partner is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I gave AG1 a try because I hated taking pills and vitamins and I wanted a supplement that actually tastes great and helps me get my hydration in. AG1 replaces my multivitamin, my probiotic, and more in one simple drinkable habit. I drink it in the morning with my coffee and I feel like I'm getting both my hydration and nutritional bases covered before my day gets started. If you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash you are not broken. That's drinkag1.com slash you are not broken. Check it out. Are there other things that you recommend for vaginal care and specifically as it relates to improved sex, what's your favorite lube? Why is silicone better than water-based? I love silicone. I love oil-based. Those are like, I could go either way on those. It's like, depends. Is it Tuesday? Okay, we'll use that. I don't like water-based because I think it's tacky. Like 
I don't like the touch to it. I think it's cold. It feels cold. And to me, like when I'm cold, I don't want to have sex. Mm-hmm. Right. So oil-based is very, it's like warm already. So I like those a lot. I don't worry about them and toys because I just don't care. But you can get like a water-based for your toys if you want. But the high-end silicone toys, it takes a lot of freaking silicone lube to affect your high-end silicone toys. But like toys will say like, don't use with the silicone lube. And to me, I'm like, whatever, I don't care. Um, It do to the, so like to the- It can just kind of erode, like it can kind of like, excoriate but kind of like erode it but the my friend here who owns a sex toy shop she actually took some high-end silicone toys and like put them overnight in the lube and now but the other thing getting back to your question is perimenopause postmenopause breastfeeding whatever it is that affects our our skin down there our skin gets dry and it'll suck up a water-based lube really quick. It's just not long-lasting. You want something that doesn't get absorbed. And that's why the silicone and the oil-based are so nice is because they're going to last a lot longer so that you can make sure you have as much pleasure as you can have. But we don't want pain with sex. And dryness and friction causes pain. I'm reading this amazing book right now called uh, Vagina Obscura by Rachel Gross. It's amazing. Great, great science writing. Her, I just read there, one in five women douche. And so I'm like, yeah, that's what the, it's in the book. I'm like, don't douche. It totally messes with your microbiome. We're trying to get your microbiome as healthy as possible. That's why vaginal estrogen prevents urinary tract infections because it repopulates your microbiome with lactobacillus and reacidifies your vagina. So it's like, do not douche. Don't do it. That's amazing. Wait, so estrogen is responsible for repopulating your vagina with a good bacteria. And because there is sort of a lot of talk now about vaginal probiotics. How do you feel about those? It's fascinating, but the vaginal probiotics don't seem to be like long lasting and it doesn't seem to give us that lactobacillus that we really want to help decrease UTIs. So that like, until I see better science on it, I just stick with vaginal estrogen. A lot of people will be like oral. Rachel Gross's book talks about vaginal microbiome transplants, which is fascinating to think about. But like, if you have an unhealthy microbiome, transplanting a healthy microbiome into it, fascinating stuff. Just vaginal? Basically taking like a dildo, putting it in a healthy vagina and then putting it in your vagina. I know, not not stuff you thought we'd be talking about today, but here we are. Don't (laughs) kill it with douching. But silicon doesn't, doesn't kill your microbiome? Um, just as far as like lube for sex. Yeah. Doesn't seem to. Okay. That's good. How does it come out actually then if it, if it just... It'll just wear off. Yeah. Watch out if you use it in the shower. It's incredibly slippery when you get like water on it. Silicone. Mm-hmm. You, know, you fall down and hurt yourself. Oh, wow. But And what about soap? Does soap help? Yeah. Soap will take it off. Yeah. yeah. That's good. We don't want people to start flipping over in the shower now and getting calls that they're <laughs> we're yeah. hurting people. Don't hurt yourself, but hey, go have fun and go try some lubes. Like, why no, not? it is amazing. I mean, also, you know, we're solidly Gen X. And when I started kind of this process with building Alley with my partner, I was talking to a friend of mine who's, who works at a uh, vibrator company in the United States. And I asked her sort of to break down the, the age group's to whom they were selling vibrators. And Gen X was the lowest users of vibrators in the country. I mean, less even than 70 and 80 year olds. So Gen X, come on, we got to 
get moving here. We got, we need more vibrators. That's amazing. Are we too busy to buy a vibrator? What's happening? We were never really taught that that was okay. We weren't told that we were allowed. I was interviewing a a guy yesterday for my podcast and he's got a daughter in her twenties and she takes her vibrators on, on dates with her. Wow. I know. I'm like, you go, you go get your sexual equality, orgasmic equality. That is really good for her. I mean, yeah, I just think different generations have been sort of empowered in different ways. Yeah, totally. Uh, I'd love to get to some of the other open questions that we haven't gotten to from people in the audience. One woman emailed in advance and I promised that I would ask this question. For those in surgical menopause who have cancers or blood clot risks that preclude them from using hormone replacement, can they use vaginal estrogen? Actually, can they use hormone replacement? What's your feeling on that? Yeah. So vaginal estrogen, absolutely. Yes. So high risk for clot hormones do not change your risk. If you're high risk, you remain high risk, but we didn't make you any higher by putting you on systemic hormones. Vaginal hormones absolutely do that. That does not increase your risk of blood clot. The question about systemic and blood clot, I always always have you check in either with the blood clot doctor and you need to see a hematologist, blah, 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 to make sure you're optimized. But transdermal, because it doesn't pass through your liver, it doesn't increase your clotting factors. So if you are higher risk or you have a history, most experts are going to say, don't do oral estrogen, consider a transdermal product. And again, it doesn't increase your risk above what your risk already is. But there's tons of papers, tons of data on the safety of transdermal systemic estrogen, not increasing clot risk. I know it's so sad when we hear from women all the time who are like, my mother had had a blood clotting problem, or even I have a blood clotting problem or factor five Leiden or different things. And so therefore I cannot take hormones and one, that's generally incorrect, but also two, I really hate the whole idea that women believe that they can't do something as opposed to understanding the risks and benefits of doing something and not doing something. So, mm-hmm. you know, in particular with hormones, there are such strong protective benefits that sometimes it's less safe not to take it than it is to take it based on that's right. what you're worried about or what you're at risk for. Here's a question, and we sort of jumped into it because we, one, we're really focused on the vagina, but two, are kind of steeped in this all the time. And one woman asked, why are doctors so against estrogen and turn their heads to a lot of this? So maybe that that brings us a step back a little higher level, but maybe if you want to address that quickly. Yeah. Like- We've been giving women estrogens, again, it's it was developed in the 40s, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, about 70%, depending on how much study you read, of postmenopausal women were on estrogen. Let's not forget our past, right? Many, many, many women were on estrogen. The government decided we needed to do a study to look at, could we use estrogen as a primary preventative tool to prevent heart disease? That was the big question, because we were just giving estrogen to women saying, this is good for your heart. We didn't have great data. So a big study was done. It's called the Women's Health Initiative. It was stopped prematurely and the media ate it up, basically saying estrogen causes breast cancer. So medical schools stopped teaching it. Residencies stopped training doctors. We have about two decades of not trained physicians. Now, what we know in med school, I was taught this in med school. Any doctor is going to tell you they were taught this in med school. 50% of what we learn in medical school will be proven wrong in our career. 
The problem yeah. is we don't know what 50%. And it is on doctors to continue to educate themselves, to continue to question the literature and to continue to keep up with the data. And now that we have so much data saying hormones not only are safe, but currently the North American Menopause Guidelines in 2022, you don't have to take my word for it, go look it up, says the benefit outweighs the risk in early menopause, roughly between ages 50 and 60. That's current data. So many doctors are coming from 2021, not being trained, being told it caused cancer, and it's really on the medical community to catch up. So that, that's why we have tons of data saying estrogen does not cause breast cancer now. And a lot of women will come to see me and they'll be like, I don't want to be on estrogen because it causes cancer. And I'll ask them, I'll be like, where'd you hear that from? That's fascinating. Show, show me where you are. And they can't tell me where they know that from. It's like so steeped into just the ether of our culture. Because what we did is we told women that something their body naturally makes harms them. And it's very hard to undo the psychological damage that has been done with that. Yeah. I mean, but, I was... But I that's recently, why we're here. <laughs> I recently had my, my bloods drawn and saw my own estrogen levels and I take systemic hormones and I estrogen and I take, I use vaginal estrogen, I use it on my face and, and it's still such a super low amount. But the amount of estrogen that you have in your body, it also showed the different amounts that you have like in the three phase trimesters of pregnancy and other times in your life. And it's like thousands of times as much estrogen then as I have now, even taking all of these various forms, it's still such a low amount, but it's again, enough to make you not feel like you're a crazy person. Yep. <laughs> Another question, can you address surgical menopause and the bladder? Should it be started right away? This woman's nine months post-op from bilateral surgical oophorectomy, and I'm not sure what TH is. Mm, total hysterectomy probably. Yeah. And the urgency is insane. I see a toilet and my bladder's like, let's go. So I'm stuck wearing pads. My OB said my vaginal tissue is moist and pliable. So I don't need vaginal estrogen. Very frustrating. Yeah. Not true. Just start on vaginal estrogen. See a physical therapist, start on vaginal estrogen. There's a study that shows vaginal estrogen is equivalent to anticholinergics, which is the most common medication used for overactive bladder. We want to restore function, not drug function. Physical therapy, because again, your muscles may have been affected just by having surgery, right? Physical therapy can do amazing things with retraining the bladder. And I never want to downplay the importance of a great pelvic floor physical therapist. Yeah. But to me, it's vaginal estrogen. doesn't matter what your vulva looks like. Your, your bladder might need some more estrogen, right? And you just haven't started to see. That's the other thing about Western medicine. Why are we waiting for her vulva to get atrophic before we start her on vaginal estrogen? Like to me, that makes no sense. It's going to happen 50 to 80% of the time. Just put her on some preventative skincare. Well, the other thing is that for women who already have symptoms and are afraid or sort of put off trying, you'll know so quickly whether it's systemic hormones that you're taking or vaginal estrogen that you're using, if it actually solves the problem. And by the time you know that it solved the problem, there's no addition. I mean, you certainly are not increasing your risk within a, a month or two months, but usually yep. you feel the benefits within days or two weeks. So it's, it's really, yep. and if you don't hang in there, because it can take six to eight weeks. Yeah. To get better. But even at six to eight weeks, if it's, you know, if, if your symptoms still are truly not resolving, either you can go up in dose or you can, maybe you've discovered that that's not the problem or you need to try something out. You know, you need to look for, look further 
but this is sort of the first line thing to try because if it doesn't work, then at least you, you solve one problem, you know, that mm-hmm. it's, and it's so easy. Um, <laughs> somebody else is as horrified as I am about clitoral phimosis. How quickly does it start after menopause? It doesn't, you don't know. We don't go around looking at clitorises to see when they get phimotic. <laughs> I guess that's true. And probably a lot of women either are too embarrassed to even go seek treatment or don't quite understand what's happening. So, yeah, but I imagine that there's whatever we do know, I have to suspect that it would be even more than that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Rachel, Dr. Rachel Rubin really is starting to do the research on pleural phimosis. Just, she just had another paper published on it. But how common is it? Probably at least 20% of women. So it's again, this is a penis and foreskin and penises get phimotic and clitorises get phimotic. Yeah. So it's only shocking because we're just starting to talk about it. Interesting. One question is why do moisturizers not replace estrogen, vaginal moisturizers? Okay, just- estrogen is a hormone that is in our body. Our body grew into an adult because of it, right? AKA puberty, right? So when we take it away, our body starts changing in a way because we don't have the estrogen anymore. And I mean to say that to be like, that's what estrogen does to our body and not just our vagina and our vulva, but like our skin and our nail, our hair, collagen, elastin, the role in our connective tissue. Why do, why do you think prolapse goes up more in the postmenopausal women? We think it's because of collagen and elastin that gets lost because of the hormones. So what the question is telling me is, is we don't fully understand what the hormones help with and the consequences of not having the hormones. Now, moisturizers are like lotion, lubes, you know, hyaluronic acid is a nice one. Basically keeping moisture on the external surface of those tissues. So it doesn't feel like sandpaper. So it doesn't feel dry. So it doesn't feel itchy. But you really are putting a Band-Aid on the external tissues. You're not actually trying to heal the tissues from the outside in. Yeah. I didn't realize this, but apparently NAMS and some other organizations, curious what you think about this, say that breast cancer survivors should start with moisturizers and go to vaginal estrogen if it fails. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's just very typical of the medical system of like, start simple, see if it works. If it doesn't, step it up. That's all they're saying. I don't think it's wrong, but I do think it misses the boat on the progressive nature of the situation. Yeah. Here's a question. I think I know the answer. My, my mom, 74, has to pee four to five times per night, but her doctor refuses to give her estrogen vaginal cream. Does she need a new doctor? Yes. Yeah. And then is, is there an age that you need to stop using it? No, uh, when you're dead. Yeah. And I tell people that to be dramatic. So they remember like, when should you stop using your seatbelts and your sunscreen? When you're yeah. dead. Otherwise it doesn't work anymore. And to think of like, when should you stop flossing? Well, when you don't have teeth anymore. Like to get it into like, this is a self-care This is taking care of our bodies. This is our responsibility as we get older to keep our body as healthy as we can, which is a very different conversation. And here's the the tip for if if your doctor refuses something, ask why. See if they understand. See if they understand the role. See if they understand that vaginal estrogen decreases urinary tract infections by 68%. Do they know that? Have they read those studies? And so, you know, I always say like, if you've got a great relationship with your doctor, Use it, talk to them, bring in the studies. But 
if you don't and they're like, she's not sexually active, she doesn't need it, it causes cancer, it causes blood clot, whatever, they don't they don't understand the modern data on it. And that's the time to be like, urinary tract infections put older people in the hospital and kill them. This is not like a, a hangnail. These can be really big problems. No, I have an 87-year-old friend, the mother of an old friend of mine who is catheterized now, has to use three pads a night or you know a day at all times. She's wearing three pads, which I also learned draw out moisture, so makes the problem worse and has had a couple of surgeries and her doctor also won't give her vaginal estrogen, which like makes me absolutely... Benign. I mean, it's over the counter in multiple countries. This is safe, safe stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it, it drives me nuts. You basically can't leave my clinic without getting a vaginal estrogen prescription because <laughs> it's sunscreen, it's skincare. And the alloy has it. So if you need it, alloy has it. If it's, yeah. it you know, come to alloy because we will get, we'll, we'll give it to you. Have you had any cases in your practice where the cream alone is not helping enough to reduce pain with sex? Feels like the entrance to the vagina has shrunk and will systemic hormones help that? Or is there another something else that can... Yeah, that's a great question. So pain with sex is multifactorial. There could be multiple reasons. It can be pelvic floor issues. It can be tightness issues. So it certainly isn't like estrogen alone is going to help all pain with sex. So to really be evaluated by somebody who can figure out your pelvic floor. With that story, I'd find a good pelvic floor physical therapist. You can go to hermanandwallace.com or org to find a pelvic floor physical therapist. They might need to start having you work on dilators to expand the pelvic floor, work on tight muscles. If you're already putting the cream there, you know I would do an exam to be like, does the skin look good? Great. I think your skin looks great. We still need to work on your pelvic floor. And what about Someone was had DCIS estrogen positive and as postmenopausal and experiencing vaginal dryness. What do you think about topical estrogen? Do it. I agree. <laughs> I mean, basically, the point is like it's everybody can do it. And the other thing about vaginal estrogen is that you can start it at any time. So while with systemic hormones, there is sort of this timing hypothesis that the earlier you start, the better it is because you actually can benefit from the protective qualities of estrogen and and prevent Alzheimer's, osteoporosis, and cardiovascular disease. But with vaginal estrogen, that's not the same. And even with systemic hormones, there's still an opportunity for women to have an agency in their own choice, depending on how they feel to be able to make that choice to start later on in life. And that's a conversation that women can and should have with their doctors. And again, an alloy doctor is available for that conversation if you want it. How important is the cutoff at 60 years old to start HRT if you enter menopause at age 57? Well, first, this is a great time to talk again about the updated NAMS guidelines. Yep. So NAMS guidelines say the benefits outweigh the risks in early menopause, which means within 10 years of menopause. So if you're menopause, if you stopped having periods at 57, a year of no periods, right? At 57. And now you're 60, you're three years post-menopause. And all things being equal, if you haven't had a stroke, if you haven't had a heart attack, if you haven't, if you don't have an increased risk where people maybe don't want to have you on hormones, if you're otherwise healthy, age 60 is not an absolute cutoff. So I'm trying to get through the, some of the other questions. I've been taking vaginal estrogen for six months and just started transdermal estrogen, progesterone, and progesterone by mouth. But my issue with menopause is that my vaginal canal has closed up about halfway from the cervix. It's not dryness. The penis just literally does not fit and it's very painful. Is this normal? What can be done at this point? 
not normal. I would see see a pelvic floor physical therapist, work on dilator therapy, see what's going on. If from a medical standpoint, see somebody who's trained in the, the vulva and the vagina. Another question about how long you can take hormones. Yeah, so for vaginal estrogen until you're dead, that's, that's my party line. For systemic, as long as the benefit outweighs the risk. So certainly in my practice, because remember, we took a lot of women off of hormones in 2001 because of the Women's Health Initiative, but about, I don't know, depends on what you read, 10 to 20% snuck through. These are the, you're going to take this out of my cold dead hands group of women. And they're now 84 years old-ish, right? And so I see them. They've been on hormones for 30 plus years. They're thriving and they're doing great. And so as long as your benefit outweighs your risk, you can keep taking them. That's old news if the, and I see this a lot because I'm a urologist. And I say, do you think it's any coincidence that you're seeing me six months after you stopped your systemic hormones? And I'll tell you, it's by the clock. They're in to see me six months after, whether it's prolapse, new incontinence, vaginal dryness, pain with sex. Somebody stopped their hormones six months ago because you're just too old now. And that's simply not true. We had a support group Months ago, when a woman came and was talking about the fact that for the prior four years, she'd been experiencing really, really severe menopausal symptoms. And it all started when she was taken off her birth control pills, which she had been taking for 30 years. And she had said to her doctor, like, you know, should I keep taking birth control? How do I know if I'm menopausal? And so she stopped taking the birth controls. She stopped getting her, you know, she didn't get a period. So the doctor deemed her menopausal, did a, did a blood test or something and didn't give her hormone therapy. And she started having crazy symptoms, but the, the woman said, should I take hormone therapy, menopausal hormone therapy? And the doctor said, I don't believe in hormones, but she had just prescribed her hormones at, you know, four times that dose for 30 years and then stopped her cold Turkey and her hair fell out. And I mean, you know, it's, she was hot flashing and night sweats and all the things. It's kind of it's rough crazy. out there, my friends. It's rough out there. So, so here to help you, educate you, et cetera. There's a lot of talk about intrarosa and sort of androgen receptors in the genitals, DHEA, mm-hmm. local topical testosterone cream versus systemic testosterone. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yep, happy to. I'll try. I've got five minutes left, but I'll give it, I'll give it my all. Last question. Um, That's a good question. So yes, our genitals have testosterone receptors, androgen receptors in them. And some people really benefit by doing a, you have to do compounded because there isn't a FDA approved product for testosterone. Usually I'll do a testosterone estrogen cream. I do that a little bit more in like a congenital vestibulodynia or provoked vestibulodynia, maybe vestibulodynia because I've been on oral birth control, which blocks the androgen and estrogen receptors in the vulva, not in everybody. And again, I'm getting like, this is this is the nuance of like the experts in the clinic sort of level with things. So it's not standard to put, to put testosterone cream in your vulva, but we do it. DHEA, Prasterone is the name of it, is an FDA approved product. It's a lovely like oil-based palm oil, I think, and DHEA in a little suppository you put in your vagina. So it kind of melts nice and like a creamy moisturizer. FDA approved for dyspareunia. Now that's a problem because Medicare says we don't care about sex, remember? So it'd be nice if it was FDA approved for atrophy. 
quite expensive still. If you have commercial insurance, you can get a coupon code. But if you have Medicare, you're not allowed to use coupon codes, things people don't know. Um, It seems to work really great. seems to work as good as vaginal estrogen for decreasing urinary tract infections. My big problem with it is, again, I love the cream on the vulva for the sexual health. Some people, that's their first go-to. It's just nice to have options. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, how many women deal with their with insurance cutting off their reimbursement for menopausal hormone treatment after a certain age. Like the insurance company decides you don't need it anymore. And specifically with vaginal estrogen, you know, that's actually when you need it the most because yeah, that's right. The older yeah, you- what annoys me, I'm on I have an epic EMR, which is one of the more common EMRs. And if a woman's on an estrogen product, a hormone, and then I put on vaginal estrogen, it actually kicks up a warning box to be like, are you sure you want to do two estrogens? And I'm like, I'm sure. Wow. And do you know who, and do you know who you're talking to? But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it, it'll flag me because they're like, they're already on hormones. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And that's something we didn't talk about. People who are on systemic hormone replacement, some people still need and benefit from an additional vaginal estrogen product. And the reason is, Systemic hormone replacement therapy is still very low dose hormones. This is not your 20 year old, 30 year old body full of hormones. This is enough to treat things and to make things good, but like we're not trying to get you pregnant or sustain a pregnancy. So it's just not enough to get. I always say the pelvis is the last train on the railway station, right? So it's like it goes to your your brain and your heart and your bones and your muscles and you know your inner ear. It goes to all the places first, and then the pelvis is like I still need some hormones. Yeah. So it's quite common that I'm going to put people on both products. I take both. I think I think it's most people are starting to do so. It's really helpful. Um, Dr. Casperson, this is such an honor to have been able to have this conversation with you. We could go on and on forever. I forgot to mention that you recently joined the Alloy family as a medical advisor. So we're super happy about that to continue to be able to benefit from your expertise and your good vibes, your joyful nature. So we're super excited about that. Also, we are doing a lot of work just sort of as a community, us, Alloy you, other doctors to try and get the black box off of vaginal estrogen to stop creating more fear about something that does not need that fear. Yeah. So more to come on that where, you know, that's a groundswell movement that we'd love for all, all women to, to help join us in this crusade. I think we're going to need to have a, a whole bunch of signatures. So we'll be reaching out about that, but more work to come. I think that's going to be the highlight of my career, man. That would be amazing. That's a career career highlight is getting that black box off vaginal estrogen. I mean, it's really doing great work for everybody. You know, all of us women. And by the way, all the men who want to engage with us women. That's <laughs> right. Know. Yeah. So this is important for everybody. It's a win-win. Hey friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com membership. I'll see you on the inside.